Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. You can be seated. Just thought of something as I was praying. Uh, my son has just completed a mission trip in India. And uh, one of the things you have to do on a mission trip is be flexible and do whatever they ask you to do. And the person that was lined up to preach couldn't preach. So they said, Cameron, will you preach tomorrow morning? So if you all know my son, that's not, that's not Cameron. But he said, sure. And as he was praying to prepare to preach, he found himself praying what I pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of your hearts be acceptable in your sight. So I just think that's cool uh, that uh, God just puts that prayer uh, in my heart, put it in his heart. I always pray that for us. Revelation chapter 2 as we continue the study on letters to the churches. Today we're going to look at the church of Smyrna, the suffering church. If you look at the church across history, the nations where there has been oppression, where the church has been persecuted, that's where the church thrives. I think about the former Soviet Union and how it was illegal to worship and how the underground church thrived and flourished. I think about China and even though they do have state-sanctioned open-door churches, the real vibrant, thriving church is the underground church, the illegal church, because persecution has forced those people to live out the reality of their Christianity. That's the church at Smyrna, the suffering church, the persecuted church. We don't have Smyrna mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. It's, it's assumed that on Paul's third journey, I believe it's his third journey, uh, while he was ministering through Ephesus, that they planted this church at Smyrna. And then we have this one description of the church as Jesus writes. So let's look at this passage as we talk about the suffering church. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life says, I know your affliction and poverty, yet... You are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will have affliction for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Anyone has an ear, should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The victor will never be harmed by the second death. It's interesting. This church, Smyrna and Philadelphia, those are the only two churches Jesus doesn't have a rebuke. Instead of condemnation, what you have here for the church at Smyrna, Smyrna is commendation. He's commending them for their faithfulness. He's reminding them of some things that are coming that, that have happened to them and letting them know some things that are going to come their way. But basically, it's a word of encouragement. So let's begin just by looking at this example, the example of the church at Smyrna. Remember, we said as we look at all of these seven churches in the book of Revelation, there's some, some things to remember. There are similar churches in our culture today that can, can be compared to these churches. We've said that these words of Jesus to the church are to offer us encouragement. And then remember we said this, not only is he speaking to churches, 
but he's also speaking to individuals so we can make application as individuals. So let's look at the first thing about the example here. And as we look at their, their life and their ministry, it's going to be the same for us. There will be suffering. Number one, or letter A, there will be suffering. If we're going to be a church that does what Jesus calls us to do, there will be suffering. Look at verse 9. I know your affliction and poverty. I know your suffering. I know your struggling. Verse 10, he says this. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. They were a suffering church. If we're to be the church that impacts our community, our nation, and our world, we will suffer. Smyrna was the center of emperor worship in that day. Remember the one of the remember one of the things the Christians had to struggle with as the church was birthed was they were they were taught to say in their culture Caesar is lord. Yet when they came to know Christ they were taught to live and breathe and say Christ is lord. Well the church at Smyrna is put smack dab in what one commentary said the hotbed of emperor worship. It became a capital offense in that city and it, it, it filtered out to other parts of the Roman Empire, a capital offense to not burn incense once a year to the cult, to the temple of Caesar, the emperor. So as you think about the church at Smyrna, and as Jesus is saying, some of you are about to be thrown into prison. Some of you are going to suffer for your obedience. He also says at the end, you will, those who are faithful to death will receive the crown of life. They suffer to the point of losing their lives for the gospel. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, uh, some believe that he was one of the pastors who would have been this angel, this messenger of the church, the pastor at the church at that time, and it's debated the timing. But about 50 years after this, we know that he was burned at the stake as pastor of this congregation because of his stance, because he wouldn't say, Caesar is Lord. He wouldn't burn incense to the emperor in that cult, that practice of worshiping Caesar. There will be suffering, church. Number two, letter B, there will be slander. He says it right here. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but of the synagogue of Satan. There will be slander. Do you know that people aren't going to understand us? They will not understand you. They will not understand a church that makes a difference in a community. They will be slandered. By the way, this church was accused of being atheists, these believers, because there were many gods, this pagan a uh, pantheon of, of, of deities that the Romans and the Greeks worshipped. When the Christians said, we're not going to worship all of those deities, they were accused of being atheists because they didn't believe in all those gods with a little g. They were accused of immorality because they had teachings that said, greet one another with a holy kiss. They were accused of cannibalism because in the Lord's Supper, as the church practiced, Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, take, eat. Do this in remembrance of me. They were misunderstood. They were slandered. Those people in that community that didn't understand their walk, their obedience, their faithfulness, made up stuff about them. Folks, they'll do that about us. When we begin to make a difference, there will be slander. Thirdly, letter C, there will be spiritual battles. If we're going to be this kind of church, that Jesus says you're faithful to death. There will be spiritual battles. In verse 9, he says, I know your poverty, your affliction and poverty. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. 
Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison to test you. And you'll have affliction for 10 days. We're not sure what that 10 days means. It could be a literal 10 days for one group or it could just mean it's going to be a, a temporary time. There will be spiritual battles. Do you notice that Jesus tells them that the real enemy is Satan himself? It's not Caesar. Can I say that again? The enemy is not Caesar. Can you put that in the context of our culture today? The enemy is not the government. The enemy is not those people out there who may be persecuting the church. The real enemy is Satan himself. Look with me. Hold that place, but look at 1 Peter. If I can find 1 Peter, just a few books before that. All right? Chapter 5, verse 8. We've looked at this so many times. This is the the admonition, the encouragement that, that Peter gives. He says, be serious, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone, anyone he can devour. Can I read that again? He says, be alert, be serious. Your adversary, the devil, not your adversary, that other church member that, that did you wrong or that you don't like or that hurt your feelings. Not your adversary, the person in the community that makes up stories about you and your church. That's not the adversary. The adversary is the devil. He's the real enemy. Look with me at Ephesians. Keep that place in, in Revelation. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 6. In verse... Uh, Beginning in verse 10, Paul's reminding us of where the real spiritual battle is, where the real struggle is. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and in his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of who? Devil. Look at verse 12. For our battle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers, against authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against spiritual, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. What does Peter say? What does Paul say? What does Jesus say through John in the Revelation? Our battle is a spiritual battle. If you're struggling in your marriage, and you're a believer and your spouse is not, your spouse is not the enemy, you're into spiritual warfare, you're, you're trying to live a life of faithfulness and obedience to Christ, and the enemy doesn't like it. Church, you're impacting the community. You're making a difference. People are coming to know Christ. The enemy doesn't like it. It is a spiritual battle. That's why we pray that God would move in hearts. Every Sunday morning, our men meet, and we pray that God's Holy Spirit would move on hearts because it's a spiritual battle. I cannot convince you to make a commitment to Christ. I cannot convince you to live a holy life. I cannot convince you to be faithful and obedient, but God's Holy Spirit can. It's a spiritual battle, folks. Remember who the enemy is. When I was a kid, out in West Texas, I loved to play with stuff I found in the desert. Two things I found in the desert right behind my house, our house backed up to the desert, were two kinds of ants. So as a little kid, you know, I had an ant farm and all that stuff. But I discovered something. I, would, I could take a big aquarium or a box and fill it with sand, and I could put two kinds of ants in there. There were these big red ants, about like that. They were a good half inch long. Put those red ants in there, and they'd be doing their thing. And I found these little bitty black ants, and I put them in there. And you know what happened? War broke out. And they fought, and I loved watching them fight. By the way, guess who won? 
little bitty black ants. And I stirred it up as much as I could. I'd get in there with a stick and I'd push those little black ants into those red ants. Get them going. I thought about that. As I was reading this passage, praying through this, that's Satan. He's got us in a box and he's stirring it up. Those ants thought they were the enemy. You know who the real enemy was? Me. I'm the one that threw them together. I'm the one that forced them to try, to try to coexist in this little box. I'm the one who kept it stirred up. Folks, that's what Satan's doing. Jesus says, watch out. But you don't have to be afraid. He's up to something. He's even going to cause some of you to be in prison and some to give your life, but don't worry about it. We're in a spiritual battle, folks. Sometimes we struggle with finances. Sometimes we struggle with decisions that we need to make as a church. And we go through these processes and we begin to get frustrated about ministry opportunities that don't go the way we thought they should go or or leadership gaps and all that. And, And we have to step back and remember, this is a spiritual battle we're in. A couple of good things here. Let's look at these last two. Letter D. There will be riches there will be riches. Look at verse 9 again. I know your affliction and poverty, yet you are what? Rich. Wealthy. And by the way, they were physically poor. Many in this church were slaves who'd come to know Christ because of the persecution in Smyrna. People were losing their jobs because they stood for Christ. You kind of want to come work for us? Meet us down at the temple to the emperor, and we're going to burn some incense next Thursday. Hope you're there. Sorry, I can't do that. You're fired. They were poor because they'd lost their jobs because of their stand for Christ. And he says, even in the midst of that affliction and poverty, you are rich. You're rich. How can that be? Look with me at Matthew chapter 6. He kind of puts this all in perspective. How can it be without the means to support myself, without food on the table, without a place to live? How how can that be that I'm rich? Verse 25. Jesus says, this is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. Christian, listen to this. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food? The body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow and reap or gather into barns, yet yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like these. If that's how God clothes the grass, look at this. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you have little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Now why did I read all that? To set up verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. 
Folks, we are rich. We are wealthy beyond imagination because we seek His kingdom first and we rely on Him to meet our needs. One of my favorite things that we've done as a church has been to go through the care and share ministry where we will be doing that again sometime in the near future where we just begin to pray for needs that our church members had and watch God meet those needs and, and we celebrated it. Had a bulletin board with needs and needs met and, and every time God met a need, we celebrated that. Folks, we're rich. The God who created us owns it all. Will the psalmist say that, that he owns a cattle, I guess it's a psalmist, on a thousand hills? I used to have a pastor friend, we'd be praying. He said, Lord, your word says you own the cattle on a thousand hills. And we're asking you to go sell a truckload and send the money our way. Folks, we are rich. May not be the way the world sees riches. But our God is the creator of the universe and he owns it all and he knows you and he knows your needs. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives this real brief testimony that I just want to read this one passage in a, a couple of translations. 2 Corinthians 6.10 Paul is going through this long list of how, how he's been through so much that God has blessed him and he says, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. I love that. The New Living Translation translates verse 10 this way. Listen, our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we have spiritual riches that we give to others. We own nothing, yet we have everything. Folks, that's the church at Smyrna. That ultimately can be us. The way the world looks at riches, we may not have much, but we have everything. Riches. The last word of example here, there will be rewards. There will be rewards. Verse 10 says, Those who are faithful unto death, I will give the crown of life. That's just eternal life. Rewards. Folks, it won't be rewards in this world. It'll be rewards in the world to come. A pastor to church when, uh, I, you know, you, you, what, one thing pastors do when they get a new congregation as they go just exploring the facilities and I went exploring I found this one room and I opened the door and in, in another church where I pastored and it was a it was apparently the library but I wasn't sure because it had flowers and stuff in it but uh, there were all kinds of trophies in that room stacked up to the ceiling collecting dust and I started to investigate and found out all those trophies had city champion on them city championship city championship and and that church before I got there were city champions in softball for years and years and years and years and years. And they all had all the big trophies to celebrate and they were in a back room collecting dust. I thought that's where softball trophies belong when you're a church, that that's what it's all about. If that's all you're about, that's all you got. Folks, Smyrna was about obedience, about the kingdom. and God was blessing them with rewards and he would reward them ultimately. So let's look at the encouragement now. Just want to quickly go through this list of encouraging things that I believe God's word says to us 
If we're to be this kind of church that suffers, and again, I said this applies to individuals. This may be for you where you are. So number two, the encouragement. The first word of encouragement is this. Be surrendered. Be surrendered. Because God may be directing you. Be surrendered. God may be directing us. You may not be able to know where he's directing. Someone said when you can't trace the results, trust the Redeemer. The book of Proverbs chapter 20 verse 30 says that it's painful sometimes. But God uses painful situations to change our ways. God may be directing you through a trial that's coming your way. God has directed this church periodically through different times as we've stopped and seemed to be a roadblock or a struggle or a a crisis that we've gone through. God is redirecting us and He's done that. That's what He'll do in your life. Trust Him in the midst. Corey Ten Boom, her family was imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp. Some of them were executed and she and and her sister went into this concentration camp because they had uh, hidden some Jews during the Holocaust. And in the midst of that concentration camp situation where people were dying, people were suffering, she said, there is no pit so deep that the love of Christ is not deeper still. Folks, God may be using that circumstance to direct you, to guide you. Be surrendered to that. Don't fight Him. Just say, Lord, I'm surrendered. Secondly, be submissive. Be submissive. God may be correcting us. God may be correcting us. Psalm 119, verse 71. The psalmist said, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn from your statutes. The Living Bible says, It's the best thing that's ever happened to me because it taught me to pay attention to you. God may be bringing something into the life of this church. He may be bringing something into into your family's life, into your life as an individual. And He may be saying, I need to correct you. I need to direct you. I need to make your ways like my ways. Whenever a trial comes your way, the first question you ought to ask is, God, is there sin in my life that I might need to be confessing to you? Is this trial coming into my life so that you can correct me? Like a small child that reaches for a hot stove. What does any parent do? Slaps their wrist. A gentle tap to say, that will burn you. No, ouch. That's sometimes the way God brings correction into our life. So be submissive. He may be correcting us. He may be perfecting us. He may be perfecting us. Romans chapter 5. Listen to what Paul said about this. In verse 3. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. Then James said it this way in James chapter 1. Where is James? There he is. Verse 2 in James chapter 1. Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith develops or produces endurance. But endurance must have its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Can I say it again? God may be perfecting you, maturing you, making you more like Christ. Not too long ago, I watched a documentary about the Navy SEALs. 
and all the training that they go through and how they put those guys through unimaginable scenarios of having to hold their breath underwater, of having to sleep out on the beach in the freezing cold, of having to go without sleep for days. Why do they do all that? So that they can be solid, strong characters when they're in the battle. God may be bringing things into the life of your family as an individual, as a church, to mature us, to perfect us. Third encouragement, be safe. God may be protecting us. Be safe. God may be protecting us. Do you know that sometimes God allows difficulties to come into the life of a believer because He wants to protect them from something worse? I think about the story of Joseph. Oh my goodness, do you know the story? How his brothers tried to kill him first of all, then had second thoughts and sold him into slavery, and then he went into slavery into Egypt, and then he was taken from there as as a slave and taken into Potiphar's house and wrongly accused of something and thrown into prison and forgotten in prison. His father was told that he was dead. Years go by and Joseph is in the, the pits literally in his life. And finally, God puts Joseph in a place where he's second in command to Pharaoh. And because of Joseph's dreams, God directs him to give wisdom to Pharaoh. And they're able to protect the whole known world at that time from a famine. And Joseph ultimately ends up rescuing many people. And then his own family from from Canaan comes into Egypt and he saved them. And they became a a nation ultimately in Egypt. And when Joseph's brothers got there, he, he said that in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He said to his brothers, you planned it for evil, but God meant it for good. To bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Folks, God may be protecting us. He may be protecting you. He may be allowing things to come into your life that you don't understand because He wants to keep you safe. You just don't see it. person, this has happened to me. Have a flat tire, your car breaks down and you're delayed and you're so frustrated about that. Or maybe the car won't start and you have to jump start it. And then down the road you find out there was a major accident right where you would have been if you didn't have that breakdown. Say, thank you, Lord. That crisis of a dead battery or a flat tire that I thought was so terrible in my life, you were just slowing me down so I wouldn't be there for that worst thing. Be safe. God may be protecting us. Be sure. God may be inspecting us. Be sure. God may be inspecting us. The Bible says in Revelation 2 that Satan is testing them. He's really trying to break them. The Bible says in James and in Romans we just read that God is using those experiences to test us so that the testing of our faith may may prove sure. God just may be checking you out. God may be putting something in your life so you'll check yourself out. How many times have we said you need to know that you know that you know that you have a relationship with Christ and He may be bringing stuff in your life to make sure that you know, to test you? Someone said Christians are like tea bags. If you want to know what they're really like, just put them in hot water. God may be saying to you, I just want to see what you're made of. 
Because well, the way you go through this trial, it's going to be a witness and a testimony to others. You're going to have the assurance. You're going to know. God may be directing us, correcting us. He may be maturing and perfecting us. It might just be to protect us or to inspect us. I, I look at the church at Smyrna, and because they loved the Lord, they were faithful. And because they were faithful, they were hated. And because they were hated, they were persecuted. And because they were persecuted, they were motivated to become more faithful. Do you see how it works? That's the way God wants to do it. Can I say this? It's a cliche. No pain, no gain. You know why the church in America has floundered for so many years? It's because we live in a, in a land of ease. There is no persecution. There are isolated instances of that, but by and large, we've got it pretty easy here. Do you know that when we pray for the persecuted church across the world, we're praying for them that God would protect them and keep them safe? And you know what they tell us? Don't pray that. They say they're praying for us that God would put us through the fire so we can know the experience trusting God through the midst of the trial. Folks, the church at Smyrna was a suffering church, but it was a church that was faithful. I want us to be a faithful church. Whatever God brings our way, whatever God brings your family, whatever God brings your, into your life, to your business, to wherever you, wherever you live, that as he brings those things, that he would demonstrate that we are truly faithful. Charles Colson used to tell a story about a Cuban poet, Armando Valladares. He was arrested back in 1960 for opposing Castro, put in prison for 22 years. He wrote a book called Against All Hope. In there, he tells the story about how he would hear Christians being taken, marched to be executed, to the firing squad. And he would sit there at night and cringing with the people crying, going to the firing squad. But he said he would listen to the Christians and they would shout as they went to the firing squad. Viva Cristo Rey. Christ, long live Christ the King. And as he listened to those people being taken to execution, saying, long live Christ, the King, God stirred his heart and he went into prison, very marginal in his obedience, in his Christian faith. And he left there, he wrote these, these things. He said, Christ has become my indestructible shield. Folks, there may be people in your life and they're watching you. And they're watching you go through the stuff of life they watch this church go through the stuff churches go through, and they hear us proclaim loud and clear, Christ is Lord. And it impacts them. And they want what we have. God gets the glory. Let's pray.